Hey there. Welcome to More Than a Crush, a podcast about love. Each week, we pick a theme and share a story about one of the many facets of love. We are your hosts. I'm Marion Bolognese, an artist and designer recording from New York. And I'm Kim Berry, a therapist broadcasting from New Jersey. So how are you doing today? I'm doing shockingly and surprisingly well. It's a Friday morning. The sun is shining. I feel well rested. I'm not going to lie. I'm trying to like be present and enjoy it and not just have that feeling of like waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> be like, no, 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 no. You don't know. <laughs> this won't last for long. Like, no, 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 no. You just be present and you enjoy this moment. The here and now, Alan Watts moment of enjoying this delightfulness. And yes, all things change and whatever. But like right now, things are good. Like in this moment, I'm enjoying it. And we're recording. I'm feeling productive. Same. I've got a snuggly cat stage right. It's fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm having a very productive day. I'm juggling a bunch of projects right now, but they are all going well. Knock on wood, my two little daughters are at daycare. They had a little bit of a rough night last night and both slept with me, which is the second time that that's happened ever, but in two weeks. And I actually had a moment where I was like, you know what, last night where I was like, oh, will I go in their own beds? I'm never going to get any sleep. And I was like, wait a second, check yourself. Like, no, these two beautiful little girls are cuddling with you right now and sleeping. And this is actually a really nice moment. I'm in a bed. With enough room, a very large bed, with my two little baby daughters and my dog and (laughs) my husband. There's a whole lot of love in there, so nothing to complain about. I love that positive reframe. Yeah, I hear you. Sometimes you're like, it would be lovely if you would just do this in your own bed, but other times, if you're still able to sleep and it's snuggles are great. Yeah, they're teething and whatever. Teeth. Who needs them? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, Kim, would you like to introduce our theme today? I would. I'm excited for this theme. Our theme today is bromance. Bro. Mance. Bromance. Bromance. (laughs) I've been wanting to do this one for a while, actually. Since the first day that we recorded, you were like, when can we do bromance? I was like, Kim loves a good bromance. I love them. You know what it is? I think... That it, we have like a long tradition of buddy comedies, you know, in general, like movies and whatnot. But the term bromance, I just love it. Probably weeks ago, I really went to watch I Love You Man and I couldn't find it on any streaming platforms. And I was so bummed. I really apparently had an itch for like Jason Siegel and Paul Rudd. But yeah, I really like Jason Siegel. You really like Paul Rudd. That's funny, huh? Classic bromance movie right there. I mean, I like Paul Rudd, too. We don't have to fight over him. It's all right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great movie. For some reason, like, bromance, I love the idea of bromance. For some reason, the word bothers me for some reason. Like, I don't know, there's something about it, like, hokey. I guess it's just like, what, guys, why do you have such a hard time just acknowledging that you love each other? You know? Like, it's okay. Like, it isn't like, this is a bromance. You know? It's like, it's all right. Yeah, like, you just, you love your friend, you know? Well, it's funny. Yeah. We don't have to make it a tough name. It's funny you say that, because I actually talk about that in my story today. Hmm. Wow. Tell me. Let's talk about it. 
my little preparation for today kind of has like a little meandering tail because I kind of was thinking a lot about bromances and real life applications. I was thinking a lot about how sports have to do come into play. But then I was kind of thinking about like, what is this like science? What's the psychology of, of a bromance? And also it's funny that you're saying you don't like the word because it's portmanteau, which I love. I love it when you take words and you smash them together. But I do agree I love a portmanteau. That's not the problem. I love a portmanteau or a Frankenword. And one of my favorite things is to come up with new ones. And it's a great one. It's just the, you know, the way it's like thrown around sometimes. It's just like, okay, guys, you can just acknowledge that you love your friend without having to be like this, you know? It undercuts the sincerity of the relationship, right. I think. Like, just get over it. Love your friend. The two words, the Frankenword is brother and romance, right? And obviously in a non-sexual way. And it defines this like healthy and secure relationship between two or more men. Brother from another mother. I mean, that's basically what it is, right? I have actually a little bit more commentary about why I think the need to make this catchy, hokey kind of phrase has to come up, like a jokiness to it. I'll kind of circle back to that in a minute. To speak to that, it's like, unfortunately, a lot of men shy away from forming these kind of close bonds, these friendships, because they're fearful of how it impacts their masculinity. And I think that's kind of like when we talk about toxic masculinity, it impacts men, too. It's not just that it does bad things for women. But I think like you even saying this, right, like we have to undercut a close friendship by like putting a silly name on it. No, just be fucking friends and be close and like enjoy it doesn't undercut your masculinity to have a good friendship or a good relationship with another person. That's ridiculous. It's like, you don't have to put a silly name on it to protect yourself from that bond. Yeah. I mean, it just like reminds me of that, like awkward dude friend hug, you know, where they're like, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, like, let's not get too close, you know, or like the conversation of not sharing a bed mm -hmm. kind of thing. You should love your friends. Like, you should. You need them. Men, you need friends. You need relationships. You need love. You do not all of a sudden develop a vagina when you start admitting You'd that probably you be a lot better off if you did. <laughs> but you'd be yeah. really lucky if you did. Exactly. <laughs> that is a great transition to my next point, which is, like, there's this misconception that men should be emotionally restrained. They need to be in control. They need to be independent. So there's a psychiatrist from UPenn that has done this study, and he has something in Philadelphia called the, like, Male Friendship Lab. And he suggests that actually close male friendships, as does tons of other research, by the way, I'm just citing his particular work, um, that close male friendships improve mental health. And it creates this environment for safe expression and an ability to improve intimacy, which is noteworthy because when they're able to improve intimacy among their male friendships, it translates to romantic relationships with women. And in this case, the men, they're feeling heard. They're saying they don't feel judged, which is important. Like that's qualities I'd hope for everybody. And the best part about it is actually they're looking here in a more like a heterosexual population, but the women like it. From Garfield's research, the women's feedback is that men appear to be more present and accounted for. And it's not like, so men always have this concern, like, oh, I'm going to be a wimp if I have these like close, intimate, emotional relationships with other men. And it's quite the opposite. Women see it and they're like, oh, you're not a wimp because you're emotionally in touch. You're showing up. So it becomes an asset, not a liability. Men report appreciating these close connections with other men because they feel less pressured or less judged 
than by their romantic partners, which I think is kind of interesting too. They might feel like they have to choose their words more carefully with a romantic partner, or they might be concerned about like fallout of like their ability to express themselves. But when they're with their close male friends, they feel like they can talk more freely and be able to express themselves without that kind of fallout. AKA they won't be stuck sleeping on the couch if they get in a big (laughs) lover's quarrel over a disagreement or something like that. (laughs) And so I was really curious about you know, I see a lot of bonding over sports. And I see that actually really firsthand. So in my household, sports, I mean, not from me personally, I'm truth be told, not really a big sports person. My compromise is I will watch basketball and some baseball, but I'm not really a sports person. And actually when when I first started dating the senator, I was very frank. And I said, listen, I just need to be really upfront mm-hmm. with you. I don't do sports and I especially don't do football. And if you're okay with this, then we can continue to date and we will work out just fine. And he said, that is a-okay. That's my time to hang out with my friends and you get to do whatever you want. And I don't need you to like everything I like. And I was like, excellent. Fantastic. P.S. I also don't like camping. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do see a lot of his connection with his friends over sports. And I recognize not all men have to bond over sports at all. But I, I'm very intrigued by this concept. Um, and also growing up just outside of Philadelphia, where the love of sports for the sports teams in Philadelphia are just next level. They are There's an intensity. I mean, have you, have you guys have you seen Silver Linings Playbook? That is not an exaggeration. People are crazy about their sports down there. And as a non-sports person, that was always an interesting, just a kind of outsider's perspective of like what's going on here. My family, a lot of family members are part of that like Penn State tradition. That's another big sports kind of thing that I always just was like, hmm, head scratching over. It's very intriguing. Like look at this bonding occurring over sports and particularly with men. And so I was looking into that as far as like, how does that impact romance, right? And so some of the research I was reading, it's saying that when men are allowed to show fear and vulnerability, then deeper connections can be expressed. So for men who kind of conform to this more traditional idea of masculinity, playing sports, especially full contact sports, might be related to surges of testosterone. Oh my God, hormones. Who would have thought the story would have involved hormones? (laughs) And testosterone is more associated with rough and tumble play. And also sports tend to align with these like masculine constructs like winning, risk-taking, violence, dominance, and status-seeking. Now, watching sports can have a very similar externalization of these traits. And bonding over shared teams have all these psychological benefits of winning. And it's actually a psychologically healthy activity to watch sports. It connects us to other like-minded people and it gives us a sense of belonging and higher self-esteem and less loneliness. So already you're kind of seeing this synergy of how sports has improved mental health benefits as well as connection with other men. So it kind of creates this breeding ground of good connection. And as I was saying, I'll engage in watching basketball. I really enjoy it. And truthfully, at this point, like I'm into it. And basketball is fun. I also love a good human interest story. 
I will watch ESPN's 30 for 30s. Oh, I was just thinking this. Like 30 for 30 is the I love best. Them. So I try to, you know, really stay engaged by getting to know who these players are. Also, I think that might just be the therapist in me being like, who's that guy? And like, what's his backstory? You know, the trades happen so frequently that you kind of like get connected with a player and then they're off to another team. I don't know. I feel it's a bummer. I'm like, oh, man, I was rooting for that guy on the team and now he's not on the team anymore. That's always been my problem with sports. Like, I actually like watching the games, particularly baseball and basketball, just like you said. Baseball, especially for some reason, I find it super interesting, the stats. My husband's really good at explaining all the history because he knows a lot about baseball. And I find that to be super interesting. I love 30 for 30. And honestly, I could watch the 30 for 30 anytime, which is funny to me because I really am not interested in sports generally. And that's always been my issue. Like, like I got very, you know, I get attached to the players and then they mm-hmm. get traded. I'm like, I don't want to watch this anymore. You know, Allen Iverson, fucking incredible player, right? I was in a relationship once and, you know, it was a big basketball <laughs> relationship. Like it wasn't for me, but the person I was dating loved basketball and it, we actually weren't watching. It was just when they would play the Sixers that I was like, this guy is fucking phenomenal, you know? And I just wanted to watch that. And same with the Yankees. Got attached to Alfonso Soriano. And he was just like super, you know, wonderful. Jeter's amazing. And get attached to the players. And then they're no longer with it. I mean, I understand like, you know, Jeter obviously was with the Yankees forever. You didn't have to worry about him getting traded out, but so many other players. And then you're like, I don't want to watch this anymore. I was super into watching. is gone now. I've also kind of thought about what is it like to be a player who gets traded all the time? And what is it like for them? That just must be so lonely. And I think that really was a thought that got into my head when years ago, I was working with somebody who, I forget the connection, but I think that they had graduated from Rutgers and they were friends with a basketball player who played at Rutgers, who then wound up playing for the Sixers. And it was a really young player. And then he got traded right off the bat to somewhere else. I remember just thinking like, wow, that must be so lonely, you know, at least from Rutgers to Philly. I don't know where if he's actually from New Jersey or not, but close. Right. And then all of a sudden you're getting shipped out to the Midwest to play. Now, granted, I know I'm sure he was crying himself all the way to the bank with all of his money that he was making in these trades. But there's that element of you're getting traded, you know, you're not staying connected. And if I'm feeling that way about a player, I can only imagine what it must be like for these athletes who are getting moved around. And a few years ago, there were two players on the Sixers that were having a serious bromance. And I'm going to talk about them. They went by Toby and Bobby, Tobias Harris, who's still on the Sixers, and Boban Majarovic, I think I just butchered his last name, I apologize, who's now actually, I think, on the Dallas Mavericks. But they played together for three different teams. So I remember that when they showed up on the Sixers together, they played really well together. And then all of a sudden they have this little sidebar social media situation and they would, you know, put on this little digital show called the Toby and Bobby show. They started off together in 2016 with the Detroit Pistons. And then they both wind up getting traded to the LA Clippers. And then they're both on the Philadelphia Sixers. So, I mean, they only played together, I think for three years together, but That's a long time, especially, you know, as they moved along from team to team. When Boban, he had a part in John Wick 3. When he went to the premiere, he brought Tobias, which I was like, that is the cutest thing ever. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they play really well together. But then again, they have this like friendship off the court. In this one interview, Tobias attributes their friendship beginning with us, like they're working out together and they're training and like shared common music. And he just speaks so fondly of Boban. He's like, oh, he's got a good personality. He never has a bad day. And Boban talks about Tobias saying that he just helps him improve as a person and as a player. And again, they like started off, I think even before they got to the Sixers, they were doing these Instagram stories and then it developed into this digital series where they would just do these goofy things all the time. There was this video I watched of them with Polly Shore and they're in Hawaii. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? This is ridiculous. They had like a little spot where... Boban said he wanted to do Soul Cycle, but he couldn't do it because they don't have the bike shoes that are big enough for him. So Tobias gets him. Boban is 7'4. He is a giant. So <laughs> I think he probably wears size like 22 shoes or who knows what, right? Giant shoes. And they show him doing Soul Cycle. It just looks ridiculous. Like he's going to crumple this like to- toy bicycle or something like that. But You know, apparently when they first started in Detroit, they were friendly. But what happened was they both wind up getting traded to the Clippers as part of this like package deal to get Blake Griffin. This is like in 2017. And when they were both in Detroit, Boban has his family there. And I guess Tobias Harris had his network there, too. So when they were done practicing, they would just go home, right? But after they got traded, they became super good friends because they only had each other. They didn't have anyone else, and it really worked out for them. So when they wound up going to the Clippers in Los Angeles, that's you know the world's entertainment capital, digital TV show, and they wound up shooting these couple episodes of an internet series about their lives together in Los Angeles. And they started when they were at the Clippers, and it just became this instant hit with all of their fans and their teammates and people really enjoyed doing it they used to actually have a instagram account but it's been since taken over i guess they relinquished that tobias is still on the sixers so i get to enjoy watching him play boban he's gone and since the trade boban said we may not be on the same team but friends stay friends forever and apparently they still talk in text regularly and It's one of my favorite little sports bromances. I know there's tons more, but theirs is just so wholesome and cute. I miss it. It's, I guess, mildly irrelevant at this point because they haven't played on the same team for a couple of years. I loved it. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it. Please look them up. They're adorable and hilarious. And they're just kind of goofy, which is kind of lovely to see too, considering that they're these like giant, massive men. Boban makes Tobias look so small, and Tobias is 6'8", and he looks like a child next to this 7'4 man. (laughs) It's always funny to me when super tall to, you know, civilian basketball players are short on the court. There's a picture of the two of them next to Will Smith, who, I mean, he's a tall guy. Will Smith is, you know, as far as entertainers go, is like a tall guy. I mean, he must be over six feet. Right? Yeah, and think. he is looking short. <laughs> short and, <laughs> and slight, I'll put it that way. <laughs> but when we release this, I'll try to find some good videos of the two of them, like, dancing and doing some fun things. They're great. They're filled with a lot of joy, and I think that's part of it, too. And watching them play was also very enjoyable. They clearly had a good working relationship People who you can see just love the game and are really super enthusiastic, no matter what sport you're watching, always make it 
more fun to watch, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. They're just like really loving it, loving every minute of it. And how lucky are you, you know, if you love it and that's what you got to do and you're fucking awesome at yeah. it. And get, making tons yeah. of money. I looked at. And making tons of money. I forget how much they were getting paid for all these trades, but I know that Boban's trade was like a short deal, but it was something like seven mil. And Tobias, I looked up his salary and it's like 32 million a year. Chill. Pretty chill. Just a little little pocket change. Yeah. I mean, that's no big deal. Whatever. I think that's about how much we make it during our uh, podcasting empire, correct? <laughs> yes, yes. Sure. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what your story is, because you had sent me a text ahead of time asking me if I was going to be doing The King's Speech, which I have previously referred to as the greatest bromance movie. Well, just because you've been, you know, just so pumped for romance, and then you mention it in an episode, and I was listening to that episode for some reason, you're like, the greatest romance. I was like, oh, this is what she's going to do. Lo and behold, no, she didn't do it. And then I was like, maybe I'll do it. But no, I decided not to do it either. (laughs) So what do you think of when you think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Do you immediately think of... Two of the handsomest man, yes. men to ever share the screen. Yes. Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Yes. I do. Or do you think of scary, violent train heists and the Wild West? I think of Paul Newman. I think of the two hot actors. <laughs> yeah. Anytime I have an opportunity to think about Paul Newman, I do. An old lady to appreciate them. Well, I think by my measurement, we are now the old women that I was assessing yeah. in fourth grade. So... <laughs> I'm not even talking about (laughs) Paul Newman in my story. Although supposedly Paul Newman and Robert Redford did have a beautiful friendship after starring in the classic movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is an awesome movie. But I'm actually talking about the real Butch Cassidy, the real men, the actual Butch Cassidy and the actual Sundance Kid. I guess we can start with Butch, who was portrayed by the very handsome Paul Newman. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently he was just about as far away from your typical bank robber as Paul Newman was. He was very well dressed. He was very smart. He was a leader. From what it sounds like, you know, he could have starred as someone else. He could have been an actor or a politician. He was super charming and he was well liked by everybody that he met. He was friendly, adventurous, generous, loyal. People couldn't resist him. You know, as so many charismatic figures are, that we know about you. It's because you stood out for some reason from that time. So maybe actually all those characteristics really do lend themselves to being able to pull off huge heists. He didn't like authority. He didn't like authority figures. He hated the big money railroad men that he was hitting up. And he's likened to, very often, sort of a Robin Hood of the West. I've heard that a lot. He and Sundance were both elites in the West. They were very skilled. They could have done whatever they wanted. They were excellent horsemen, ranchers. And one of the things that really distinguished Butch was his understanding of horses. He was able to pick a horse, really, you know, pick a really good horse, and that gave him the advantage. It's like having a better car than the person who's chasing you down. Oh, yeah. And also what he would do is he set up his horses in sort of a relay along his routes. So when he was robbing a bank, he would leave 
the bank after the race and sort of like a getaway car. He'd have his horses set up in one location and then he'd have more horses set up at another location just about the time that his horses might get tired and need refreshing. Brilliant. Now, in retrospect, it doesn't seem that revolutionary of an idea, but nobody was doing it at the time. So he'd get fresh horses. People chasing him did not have this. They didn't know it was coming. They didn't have the horses set up so that they could go and get away. This gave him the advantage majorly. So they they were part of a gang called the Wild Bunch, which <laughs> sort of appears to have been the brains behind this gang. He was known for being particularly tough. He wasn't violent at all. He was very smart and he thought on his feet. Sundance was not necessarily as charismatic as Butch. He was quieter. He kept to himself. He also wasn't known for being very violent. He wasn't considered as charming. He wasn't as funny but he was a real ladies' man. Mm. Ladies liked him a lot. And these two really seemed to complement each other. And they shared a love for adventure and thrill-seeking. They also liked to gamble a lot. It's a gamble to do the things that he's doing in the first place, let alone actually bet on things. Completely. And if you like to gamble and you like to travel and you like to, you know, adventure... You need money for that, right? Mm -hmm. So the best way to be able to get money for them, to get a lot of money so that they could do all the things that they liked, was to steal it. And that's what they did <laughs> together. So a little backstory here. Butch was born Robert Leroy Parker on April 13th, Aries season. He was born in Beaver, Utah, to a very religious Mormon family. This was a big, loving family. His parents seemed to have treated him very well. He did not have a sketchy or unfortunate childhood at all. Seems like he had a nice upbringing. There was some situation where they lost part of their family home that really upset him, or there was some sort of dispute. I couldn't really find clear information, and that sort of changed him a little bit. But altogether, it sounds like he came from a pretty big, stable family. And Sundance also came from a very stable family. He's from Pennsylvania, actually, from Montclair, Pennsylvania. And he was from an upper-class family, and he was very well-educated. And they do not have his exact birth date on record, but he was born in 1867. And he grew up reading books about the Wild West and fantasizing about it. And so as soon as he could, he made his way out to the West so that he could, you know, enact his dreams and become a cowboy. So they both ended up doing the same thing. They both became ranch hands. And as I mentioned earlier, they were both very good at this. They were skilled with horses. They were good at corralling the cattle. Butch becomes a butcher. That's how he gets his nickname, Butch. But somehow, I don't know what was going on within these ranches, but it seems like it was very easy to go from being a rancher to then kind of getting sucked into crime. And I think that that was because livestock theft was a big thing back then. People were stealing horses. People were stealing livestock. Anything that was of value, people were basically stealing at this time. It's kind of a lawless time out West. Well, and all over, because do you remember with the Hatfields, like one of their biggest brawls was over a stolen hog? Yes, right. Absolutely. So early on, um, Butch, before he's met Sundance, gets sucked into livestock theft and doing that to make money on the side. And then he works his way up until in 1989, he successfully robs his first bank. And he steals $28,000, which is a lot of money. It's about $800,000 in today's money. Wow. And he was only 23 years old. 
So after this successful robbery, he lays low for a little while. It goes back to ranching, keeps his money, keeps a low profile, keeps his money to himself. And, you know, isn't interested in getting back into crime right away. But he's framed, unknowingly purchases some stolen horses, and he gets caught by the sheriff. And he ends up doing an 18-month stint in jail. This time in prison sort of hardens him a little bit. And he leaves with a greater desire to kind of stick it to the man. and even less respect for authority than he went in with. He meets Sundance just after getting out of jail. As I mentioned, Sundance had also gone into the ranch life after he came over from Pennsylvania. It had also led him into petty theft. And he also had similarly gone to jail. And that's how he got his name, the Sundance Kid, while he was in jail. He became known very quickly for being a sharpshooter. He was really good with his gun. As was Butch, but Sundance was like very well known for his skills with a gun. Although he's not known for actually shooting anybody in a holdup at all. Well, I guess when you're as good with a gun as he is, you don't have to necessarily use it to kill anybody. You can scare people with it. He had just the skill set that Butch was looking for. And um, and it seems like he also, similarly to Butch, they could restrain themselves. They were smart. They were calculated. There were a lot of unsavory characters. There were people that had, you know, bad tempers and didn't know how to keep things cool. And so these two knew how to do that. They were kind of gentlemen, you know, gentlemen in this lawless world. (laughs) Gentlemen robbers. (laughs) They dressed well. They were calculated. They planned. They weren't just like a bunch of rough criminals. They weren't full of bloodlust. They were there for the money and they just wanted to get in and get out. Do no harm for the people, I suppose. Right, exactly. Everyday people who would probably would have really gotten hurt, because like you were saying, it sounds like they're fine with sticking it to the man, but they're not trying to like hurt bank tellers or something, I would imagine, or however you do that back in the day. They didn't, that wasn't the situation at all. They're like, this is not a violent scenario. Just as now, it doesn't seem, you know, most bank robberies aren't very violent. That's not usually the intention of a bank robber. However, sometimes they are. I think, you know, also in this point in time, It might have been easier to get away with a robbery than now, you know, whereas now we have technology that makes it difficult to get away with it. On the spot, bank tellers just give you the money. Like, they're not told to withhold money at this point in time than I think they were. But it was also probably easier to get killed while you were doing this because someone might be carrying a gun in the bank with more likelihood than they would be now. They stood apart because their plans were so calculated. So they joined forces and their mark is the railroad companies and the railroad men who were just banking hard in this time. They were making a lot of money. They did so many robberies on these railroads that the railway men, the railway bosses, they had to change everything to be able to fight back. The local sheriffs weren't really sharp enough. They were no match for a butch and Sundance. (laughs) And so they hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which was a private detective agency. And they actually developed a special division of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the Union Pacific Mountain Ranger Division. And these men were matches to Butch and Sundance. Like they were smart. They knew what they were doing. They were good horsemen. They were good shots. This was not like your, you know, little Western town sheriff. These were hired detectives that were ready to get them. 
And they even modified the trains to be able to accommodate this Union Pacific Mountain Ranger division. They had trains with horse quarters, dining cars, sleeping cars that were specially suited for these men and their needs that they could be on the point, on the ball and ready to take down the wild bunch should they attack the train. Wow. And this is a lot of money, you know, to put into that. Got to spend money to save it, apparently. Right. But even still, these guys keep on getting away with these heists. That's because, as I said before, you know, Butch has set up these relays. He can get away. He's got these fresh horses set up everywhere. He's, he's got people set up to take care of them, to have their back. And then he also has their famous hideout, the hole in the wall. And basically, this hideout is up against a cliffside. And it was like very hard to maneuver around like the cliff's edge to get to the specific hideout. But there was this whole outlaw trail of different hideouts peppered along their route. And the sheriffs didn't want to go this way. First of all, there was just criminals filling the whole area, unsavory characters the whole way. I think they were just basically scared and they were just weren't prepared. They didn't know the route that they knew. So they had a really good setup. And there were also some women along the way too. <laughs> They talk about Sundance's wife. <laughs> There's not very much information about her, except that she is Sundance's wife and that nobody really knows where she came from or what happened to her. So she's like shrouded in mystery. That was smart. Yeah. I'm sure that was by design. I'm sure. So these guys really did some damage, as I said. They stole collectively about $3 million in today's money from banks throughout the West. Butch, as smart as he was, could see the future, and he saw technology developing all around them. Communication was increasing with the telegraph. Automobiles were becoming more and more common, and he just didn't foresee that he would be able to continue to get away with these heists. And photography, also. So he started to hear about opportunity in South America. I think things were a little bit behind where they were in the U.S. at that time, and they didn't really quite have the same level of technology. They had a lot of mining that he thought he could benefit from if he took his wits down there. So he and Sundance decided to make their way south, and they set up plans to go to Buenos Aires. And this was really just in time because just as this happens, for some reason, sort of foolish if you think about it, Butch and Sundance and their whole gang pose for a photograph. Oh, while they're gambling and like living it up. Mm -mm. And that photograph gets put into the hands of these Pinkertons and they put it everywhere. So they're blasted everywhere. Wanted. Wanted men. And they have their photo. So even though he had already started laying out the plan, it was time to go. I hope whoever got that picture was paid. Yeah. Old school, old Western, Wild West paparazzi right there. At that point in time, people definitely were paid to take the pictures because they Oh, that's right. You had it. to pose for it. It wasn't even like you could snap a shot of them for it. You had to sit for a photograph. Oh, gosh. Yeah, they sat for that. Yeah, 100%. Some smooth-talking photographer of the time. Got them to sit for it. Yes. Yeah, and then gave it out. Wow. So they make their way south, but they stop in New York City. And so they lived it up in New York. They passed easily as gentlemen. They had a lot of money. They they made it out. They were just gentlemen robbers. Right. And I don't think that they were, you know, as sought after necessarily in New York. So for years, these three lived in Argentina ranching, and they lived an honest life. But living straight is hard when you like to live big. And so 
they ran out of money, but gears started turning and they started to think about things and opportunities. And at this point in time, Etta, the mystery woman, disappears completely from history. Hmm. And we don't know what happened to her, just like we don't know where she came from. But she disappears and it's just Butch and Sundance plotting to go to Bolivia to rob some gold mines there. Now, things get a little bit hazy here. On November 3rd, 1908, near San Vicente, Canton, Bolivia, a courier is attacked and robbed by two masked American bandits. And the bandits then proceed to a nearby mining town where they stay in a boarding house with another miner. I don't think they realize that the boarding house is owned by another miner, but that's where they stay. And this miner becomes suspicious because they know about this recent attack and because they have a mule that is branded with the logo of the mine that was robbed. Oh, mm-mm. got sloppy. So basically he alerts the authorities and three soldiers who were under the command of Captain Justo Conca were dispatched to the town. And they were joined there by the mayor and a number of his officials, and they surround the boarding house. And on the evening of November 6th, three days after the original robbery at the mine in San Vicente, I mean, I apologize if I'm not saying these correctly, the bandits, who we assume are Butch and Sundance, but I don't really know why, to be honest, why we assume that they're Butch and Sundance, but supposedly everybody agrees that this is Butch and Sundance, open fire. That's not their MO. No, it's not. Killing one of the soldiers and wounding another, and then it just explodes into this crazy gunfight that is famously portrayed in the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it's a great finale. First of all, these guys don't seem smart enough to be Butch and Sundance. Certainly Butch Cassidy would have noticed his mule was branded. You know, it seems like you're walking around with a logo. You just stole this thing. And yeah, they don't seem to me like the opening fire kind of people. But anyway, finally at 2 a.m., the shooting, although they did hate the man. So these were soldiers. Finally at 2 a.m., the shooting stops and they hear one man screaming, like in agony, screaming from inside the boarding house. And then that's followed by a single shot, at which point, The screaming stops completely silent, and then they hear another shot just minutes later. And so they go inside, and they find two dead bodies, both covered with bullet wounds, in the arms and the legs. So, like, you know, not necessarily lethal wounds, but they were, were definitely seriously injured. And the man who was screaming, apparently, was screaming in agony, and then the one shot was in the forehead, and then the other shot was in the temple. So they believe that... One of the bandits shot his partner, you know, as a sympathy shot. Murder, suicide. And then kills himself with the last bullet. (sighs) Last bullet convenient. Yes, they shot his mortally wounded partner and then put him out of his misery before killing himself with the final bullet. So it's a very romantic idea that these two, you know, partners in crime literally die, you know, back to back, just them against this army until they can't hold it out any longer and then, you know, die together after years together by each other's side. But I don't think it's them. I know. I don't either. I don't either. I don't even (laughs) understand why it's so commonly shared that it's them. Me knowing absolutely nothing other than what you've just shared with me is like, ah, expert ruling, not them. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so the police did confirm that the men that died in that boarding house shooting were the same men that committed the heist nearby. But the actual identity of the men was never confirmed. And they did have pictures of Butch and Sundance, although I guess after years of living in Buenos Aires, they could have looked different. But they were just American and they were presumed to be Butch and Sundance. So obviously, you know, you and I are not the only people who are like, are you sure? And a lot of research has been done and actually they attempted to find the graves. And in 1991, they dug up remains of what they believed to be the bodies of these two men, but no DNA matched the living relatives of Parker and Longbaugh. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know. And then there's a lot of accounts of these two later on past this. So many people believe that they actually, even though that's the ending that's portrayed in the film, and that's a great Hollywood ending for sure. Butch and Sundance secretly made it back to the United States where they lived quietly until they became old men. There are many rumors of sightings of Butch until the 1930s. Family members claimed, claimed to have seen and visited both of them. There's also claims that Sundance changed his name to William Henry Long, you know, Long about Long. Mm-hmm. And he lived for the rest of his life in Utah. This man, William Henry Long, died in 1936. And his remains were exhumed in 2008. And they were subject to DNA testing because people are just crazy about this. Story. Yeah. But they also did not match the DNA that they had gotten from a distant relative of the Sundance kid. But it's also like really hard to say. Right. That that's really the relatives. Yeah. Hmm. I do believe, though, that it's more likely that they kind of were smart and calculated as they seem to have been through the rest of, or you know, heist careers, that they would have done something smart to be like, yeah, let's let these two other bandits take the fall. Yeah. It could have even been other members of the Hole in the Wall gang. Who maybe would have loved to have been, you know, hey, yeah, oh, sure, we're butching the Sundance. Yeah, like, whatever, we're... <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, yeah, well, I'll take some credit, but, like, they're not as good, and they're sloppy, and then they get killed. And the real two were like, yeah, go, go, yeah, you killed us. Bummer. We're dead. Don't come looking. And then they go off and live their good life. Retire. That's what I heard what you tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's how I'd like to think of it. For some reason, you know. You root for them. You're always rooting for the bank robber, right? I know very little about these two, but what I had heard, and or at least recall reading and learning about previously, was that they were not terribly violent. And no, I hadn't really heard that Robin Hood perspective, but there is something kind of, I think that trope of like bad guy, but like a golden heart or, you know, that kind of thing is welcomed right it's like you're sticking it to the man do they redistribute the wealth why were they considered robin hood-esque you know they didn't there's no real stories of them redistributing the wealth so i think it's just because they stole from the rich they robbed from the rich well that's usually how it works (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to rob from the poor i mean we leave that to the government (laughs) zing Right? <laughs> so, Kim, what are you passion on this week? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm in a good mood right now. So in this exact moment, I'm like, I'm crushing on everything. But you know what I have been enjoying thoroughly? I love my manicures. And I'm enjoying this particular set. 
I love my time with my nail artist, Vonda. She's fantastic. And it's just an enjoyable experience. She paints them nicely. I enjoy them and I get to look at them. And I feel like it's in this world that things are not as they usually are. It's a little slice of normalcy for me, which I enjoy my own expression of self when I'm wearing leggings every day and I haven't worn shoes in God knows how long. I recently invested in a new pair of fluffy slippers. I should be crushing on those too. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the nails, they make me feel like I'm mildly put together as a human, which I appreciate. So, what are you crushing on? I'm crushing on a uh, little cute little ducks that have returned to our pond. The surest sign of spring. Yay! Yeah. You have a little wiener dog that like comes and lives at your pond. I was like, no, she said ducks. 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 Quack, quack. <laughs> Quack, quack. That's right. It's it. You know, Eric and I were both like, oh, the ducks are back. We were so attached to them. It is really nice, though. It feels like really cool when they come back every year. What are they, mallards? They're hooded. I'm such a nerd. Who asked that question? <laughs> Sorry. Hooded mergensers? I don't know if I'm saying that right. My follow-up question is, does that mean you have or will have ducklings? Yeah, we usually have ducklings, totally. Oh, Last year we yes. had adorable, a whole little troop of ducklings, and they were adorable. The girls are going to love oh, them this year. Please send me regular updates of ducklings. They are so joyful. I don't love Canadian geese, which are just rampant in this area, as they are, I'm sure, in a lot of places in North America, but particularly Jersey. <sighs> There's a lot of them, and they can be mildly aggressive, but their ducklings are adorable, and like like yellow and brown and goslings just like ryan their ryan goslings are adorable <laughs> <laughs> all right kim i love you i love you too thank you for correcting my nature babies any opportunity to say goslings yeah ryan goslings yeah. <laughs> crushers we love you yes we do send us some stories tell us about your loves Yes. Do you love ducks? Do you love ducklings and goslings and <laughs> nails and humans and dogs and highway ice? <laughs> all right. All right, Kim. All the things. <laughs> anyway, tell us about your bromance. We love you. I love you, Mariona. Love you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. You've heard from us and we'd love to hear from you. Do you have a love story to share? Looking for some advice at the love variety? Reach out on email more than a crush podcast at gmail.com and find us on Instagram. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe. Special thank you to Natalie Joachim who composed our theme music. We're so appreciative, Natalie. Thank you. We love you. Amen. Amen. Amen.